Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, welcome back. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. I did too. My ho- my my voice is a little hoarse today. I've been fighting some sort of bug, not sure what it is, but it's uh, not that bad. Just affecting my voice a little bit. Well, today I am going to be having an interview with Will Lesh. Will Lesh put out a YouTube video about celestial navigation, and it's a YouTube video I will link to in the show notes. But basically, it's a two-part course. The first part is about two hours, and the second part is about seven hours. As you know, I'm planning an Atlantic crossing in January. And I remember learning celestial navigation (laughs) a long time ago. I've forgotten all of it. So I decided to update my skills and watch these videos, and they are phenomenal. I recommend that if you are trying to learn celestial navigation, of course, do everything. Read the books and watch the YouTube videos and do practice do practice problems. I'm finding that I understand the theory, will explain it very well. But when I actually go into the nautical almanac and the site reduction tables, I'm using HO229, but you could use HO211 or HO249. There's a lot of different site reduction tables that you can use. Um that's where I get screwed up because I take a wrong number from a wrong column or something always seems to go wrong. So it's nice to actually do the practice problems and see where you're making mistakes. So I'm having Will on today. He also offers wooden model sailboats through his website, Tippecanoe, and one other website. And I can't remember it off the top of my head, but he'll tell us about that. What has been going on with me? Of course, I'm preparing for my Atlantic crossing. I have one opening, and for some reason, it's really it really seems to be hard to fill this one opening up, and that is from uh, joining me in Lanzarote, the Canary Islands on the island of Lanzarote. On January 26th, and then getting off in Cape Verde on, I think it's around... February 7th. It's about a 14-day trip down from the Canary Islands to the Cape Verde Islands. Seems that it's it's hard to make those connections. And also, it's a fairly expensive connection. But I will do it with just my other crew member. Uh, If I need to, we can double-hand it down there. Just means less sleep. Also means less food we have to maintain and take care of or, or provision for. But it's easier with three people. Uh, So if you are interested, get back to me right away. And you would, of course, pay for your own travel expenses and so forth. But if you're interested, get a hold of me, franz1 at medsailor.com. All the other slots for the crossing are filled up. And uh, that's the only opening that I have. I'm not charging an admission fee, so you don't have to pay for the passage. So it's free, but uh, you have to pay your own travel expenses and pitch in a little bit for the marina expenses and the fuel expenses and the provisioning expenses. Anyway, again, write me franz1 at medsailor.com if you're interested. 
At the ranch, what's been going on at the ranch? It's snowed. We haven't had to start blowing the snow yet. I have a tractor with a snowblower on it, a little Kubota tractor with a snowblower on it. But it hasn't snowed enough that I've needed to do that. My workshop is not complete. It is up. The structure is up. It's enclosed. I'm parking my cars in there, but I don't have the uh, rough electricity in, or I don't have the electricity or the heating in it yet. I ran out of money. Things got really expensive. And also, I haven't got the front doors in. It's been an ongoing battle with the, uh, with the supplier to get the, the doors up. They were supposed to be delivered last summer. I don't know if you've tried to do any construction lately, but there seems to be a big delay up to six months on garage doors. But I actually ordered these garage doors over six months ago. And they have been delivered, but the uh, installers went up there and said I had to make some modifications on the structure before they could install them. I've done that, so I'm just waiting for them to come back. Wildlife at the ranch. We have a moose and a cow. I should say a cow moose and a calf that seem to be living at the ranch. I go walking after the snow has fallen. I can see their footprints walking around through the houses at the ranch. Uh, I've never seen them, but I can certainly see signs of them. Also, my daughter had her dog up last weekend, and it was outside and got sprayed by a skunk, which is always a lot of fun. And then finally, uh, right after a snowfall about a week ago, a small snow, snowfall, so I could see any new tracks in the snow, I saw that a mountain lion had come up to our back porch, looked around, and wandered, on, uh, uh, wandered off again. So a bit of wildlife at the ranch. I'm not spotting it. We did spot a white rabbit, which is pure white. And if you didn't need, see it immediately, you, it would just blend it into the snow. But uh, I haven't seen uh, the wildlife. I just see signs of the wildlife. One time, I guess it was a couple of years ago, I was out cross-country skiing in the meadow at the ranch. And the picture was so obvious. Uh, I went and there was a spot where you could see the prints of a raptor, probably a hawk, that had come down and grabbed something off the snow. You could see spots of blood on the snow, but you literally could see the feathers of the of the raptor in the snow. It was such a picture of obviously the raptor getting its meal for the day. Interesting what you can see in the snow that you don't see normally. Anyway, the ranch is cold. Luckily, we have a house in the city and one at the ranch. We've been down in the city for most of this week while it's been snowing up there. Anyway, that's it. If you have any desire to join me again on this crossing, write me, Franz1 at medsailor.com. Also, if you have suggestions for people that would be interesting to talk to for this podcast, also write me. I'm looking for new ideas and new people to talk to. All right. With that out of the way, let's get on to the interview with Will Lesh. All right, I am with Will Lesh. Will Lesh is the producer of two fantastic YouTube videos on learning celestial navigation. If you watch him, you'll spend about nine hours getting to know Will really well. And Will, you not only explain what to do, uh, you explain why you're doing it with these these celestial navigation videos that you put out. Now, I've read a lot of books on celestial navigation, and none of them explain it as simply as you do in your videos. So I'm always encouraging people to learn every way they can. 
read your books, but boy, we have these great instructional videos that you put out, and I, I want to thank you for it. But also, Will, before we started the recorder, and it is going now because this is the second time I pushed the record button and it didn't start, my fault. We were talking about where you live and what you do and, and also your model sailboats that you sell. You are a sailor as well. You built, a, a, I think, you, tell, tell me about the boat you built and where you went, first of all. Oh, <laughs> you want to all, about all the boats I built? <laughs> well, yeah. I guess well, you start at the beginning. Why not? Real quick. Um, well, I built a whole series of model boats when I was a kid at Lake Tippecanoe. We we had one Keystone, um, Jackram Seaworthy Keystone uh, model boat that I found in the boathouse with no rig, no mast or sails. And so I rigged it and my mother showed the sails and that was my favorite toy growing up always. Um, but then, uh, then a whole series of model boats, some more successful than others when I was quite young. Um, but then my sister and I built a canoe, a wooden, a wooden canvas canoe that um, was a good first learning experience. I was probably 10 or so, and my sister was 12. My father didn't really think we'd continue through the whole project, so he was only willing to help us buy the supplies that we could use in the next week. And so bit by bit, we accumulated, you know, we put things together and built a canoe. It was a little bit, uh, the, it was a little tippy, actually, but we did have a good time paddling it, and, and it wasn't so tippy you couldn't paddle it, but it did have, a, the top sides were a little higher than they needed to be, and it had a solid pine uh, keel and, and sawn uh, pine ribs, heavily <laughs> sawn pine ribs, and then light, light pine uh, planking and canvas over the top. So I think the learning experience there was I was duplicated with my next project. Well, I actually rebuilt a about a 17-foot open boat and sailed it from where I was teaching sailing in Rehoboth, Delaware, the Rehoboth Bay Sailing Association. Uh, we sailed that 17-foot um, boat. I bought it from the club for $100. had been sitting in a swamp for the last... 10 or 15 years, nobody really quite knew how long, and had quite a bit of rot, but I replaced all the rotten wood, and we sailed that down the coast to the Chesapeake and up to Chesapeake, which was very exciting, um, because a uh, small open boat, when you get to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, the mast was too tall, that's uh, the tunnel bridge, the mast was too tall to go under the bridge, so we had to sail out to the middle of the bay, and the bay's about 20 miles wide there, and we had to sail out to the middle of the bay and it was just getting to, to uh, dusk um, because the tunnels are quite a ways out you, you, where the bridge dips down underneath the Chesapeake Bay and then comes up on the other, you know, another few hundred yards farther along. So we had to sail out to where the tunnels, where we could sail over the tunnels part, and that was way out in the middle, and it was just getting dark and very stormy and windy, so that was exciting. That we had a great trip on that boat. All right, so then, so I'm confused. So I'm so you grew up. Where is Tippy Canoe? Is that on the East Coast or the West Coast? First, of I all? grew up. I, I lived outside Washington D.C. Ah, okay. and my dad had a boat. We sailed on the Chesapeake for years. He had okay. a 28 foot Kings Cruiser. It was all wood, um, mahogany on oak 
uh, planking built in uh, Sweden. So, um, so I grew up with wooden boats and sailing. Um, but we also spent our summers on Lake Tippecanoe in Indiana, where uh, my dad had come from there, and his parents had built a cottage on the lake. All right, so that, that's summer. where I've heard the name Tippecanoe before, because I went to school, I went to high school in Indiana, and I heard Tippecanoe all the time. I kept thinking, where does that come from? So, yeah, that is somewhere in Indiana, isn't it, then? Yeah, Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. That was President yeah. Harrison, William Henry Harrison's campaign slogan. Tyler was his vice president. Uh, candidate for vice president, and Harrison had fought a battle with the Native Americans who lived uh, along the Tippecanoe River, and um, the Tippecanoe River flows into and through uh, Lake Tippecanoe. Um, so that uh, a lot of people have sort of a vague knowledge about Tippecanoe. Um, I've heard the rhyme, but yeah, I didn't realize that that was, well, and I remember that we used to play Tippecanoe High School or something like that. I think there was some some town named Tippecanoe as well, isn't there? There's a battleship named Tippecanoe, and I think, yeah, there might be a town named Tippecanoe. And okay. Um, okay. so, yeah, the name is sort of filtered through our culture, and a lot of people don't know quite what it means, but they're familiar with it. But I do have uh, a real connection to it since we grew up every summer going to Lake Tippecanoe. And it's been a good name for our company because people remember it, even though it's a bit of a misnomer since our boats are neither tippy or canoes. They're not canoes and they're not tippy. So uh, <laughs> although although it's a good name, it doesn't uh, <laughs> it doesn't really represent our boats exactly the way they are. Okay. So, All right. So that's, so that's that was, why. That was an open boat. And then I built a ferro cement boat while I was working at the sailing club as well. And that was a ferro cement becomes a lighter material when you get up over 40 feet. But the one I built was 24 feet. So it was a very solid boat um, and somewhat, somewhat reminiscent of what I might maybe should have learned better with building the canoe that boats should be light and strong, not just not just strong. But it was very strong, and after uh, four years of teaching sailing at the sailing club while I was in college, last year of high school and then four years in college, then I took the cement boat and sailed it down the coast uh, in the late fall and got down to St. Augustine, spent the winter there and um, in the boat in harbor. Right by, uh, right above the Lions Bridge there in St. Augustine, and then sailed out to the Bahamas and eventually down to Haiti, and then back up to the Turks and Caicos Islands with that boat. Um, and it was it was pretty rough inside. Uh, <laughs> one side was finished, the starboard side was finished off with a bit of a counter and some uh, storage um, storage uh, lockers. But the port side was just raw cement still. So um, so that was pretty basic sailing. And um, the boat was fairly heavy, being 24 feet in cement. So, um, so she was not a real performance boat. But I had a good time with her and, and um, had great adventures sailing places I'd never been before. So, so when you built that boat, did you do it with, uh, I mean, I remember back in the day that seemed to be a pretty popular boat building method. 
and uh, this seems it to was. have fallen by <laughs> disrespects now. But 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 you went? Did you do the rebar? You built the form out of the rebar and then and added the. Uh, yeah, there are two, two ways. There are two approaches to building cement boats. One is you build a male mold that's all, you know, roughly planked, but basically planked. Um, uh, and then you uh, staple your wire mesh and rebar and everything to that framework that you've built, the male, male you know, shape of the boat. And then you plaster it. Um, the other approach is what I did, which is you set up um, just uh, bulkheads inside. They're going to come out. They're just temporary or frame, frames, section frames, um, representing the shape of the boat, but it's not planked over. And I just cut those out of a light plywood, quarter-inch plywood, I think, and then did the mesh over that and then rebar, a uh, real light quarter-inch rebar, and it was all wired together with uh, steel wire and then more mesh over the top. And uh, I use a chicken wire, um, chicken, I guess it's called chicken wire, isn't it? Um, uh, the standard chicken wire fencing. And um, spent two summers, two two or three summers building it. And then uh, then I had a, I actually had a professional, a professional group came in to plaster it because it all has to be plastered in one day or else you have some cold joints and that's not as strong. So we got it plastered and then I steamed it. You have to steam cure it or else you have to keep it wet for uh, more than 30 days. So I steam cured it one night and um, it was sitting on the shore, uh, not too far from the water, but uh, there wasn't any way to launch the boat there. And the club that summer had a lightning regatta. I think this is long enough ago that I've, won't get into trouble for telling you this. Uh, the club had the national championships for the lightning class that summer, and the state had loaned us a crane to weigh the boats to lift each lightning up with a scale and weigh the boats to make sure they were class legal. And so the crane was sitting out at the end of the driveway after the nationals had ended um, a week earlier, and the crane was sitting there, and my boat was sitting there upside down, and it was like, oh, this is too good to miss this opportunity. So I borrowed the state crane one night and launched my boat. The only problem was I, I launched it upside down. And um, as I launched it, the, uh, I'd built a plywood cockpit cover. It was a large open area you know, where there was going to be a cabin and cockpit constructed later. And I built sort of a plywood cover for these things, uh, for this large open area in the deck. And as I launched it, the boat hit the edge of the walkway, and the cover got dislodged. So as it was launched upside down, water was pouring into it. And then the goal was to roll it over quickly. And um, I just barely got it rolled over. And then it was uh, it was going down fast. And... Uh, so full of water, and I hopped in and started bailing with a bucket, and I realized I, I would be bailing for the next three days to get all the water out. And also the water was coming in faster than I could get it out, and I couldn't figure out why it was getting deeper and deeper as I bailed frantically. And this was like 2 in the morning, middle of the night. And uh, finally I realized that the rudder um, tube 
where the rudder had not been installed, the rudder tube was two inch a two inch diameter pipe and water was <laughs> just flowing into the tube. So, so I took off my T-shirt and jammed it in the rudder tube, swam down and jammed it in the rudder tube. And um, anyway, we got it launched, and the next morning it was dry, uh, all bailed out and dry and afloat, and the crane was picked up that morning before any of the club members arrived. So um, everyone was amazed that my boat was in the water and afloat, <laughs> having seen it on shore you know, the day before. So, now, um, now, this so wasn't, was, was this at Tippecanoe Lake or was this back in uh, back in Chesapeake you're talking about? No, this was uh, Del- uh, Delaware. Del- okay. um, Rehoboth, Bay, Rehoboth Bay, Delaware. Okay, okay. Because I'm so, zoomed in on Tippecanoe Lake on Google Earth and looking at that. So that looks like, uh, so you spent a lot of time, just not to backtrack, but you spent a lot of time. And I've, I I don't think I've ever been there, but there's a lot of private docks around that lake, everywhere on that lake, isn't there? So, Well, yeah, that's Big Lake Tippecanoe that you're looking at. Uh, Little Lake Tippecanoe is connected with a narrow channel, just, uh, you know, like a few hundred yards. And Little Lake Tippecanoe has cottages along one shore, but the far shore is all uh, natural wetland and, and undeveloped. Oh, so, okay. I see that one. That's just sort of, yeah, you can see the marshes around it. Uh, it may be called Stanton Lake. Is that maybe the name uh, of it? It's sometimes called James Lake. Okay. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I just kind of... Uh, um, you know, west. Uh, it's just to the east of... I mean, it, it almost looks like part of... Ah, uh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, there's Camp Crosley YMCA Camp. Yeah, James Lake. Here it is. There yeah, we were... Like two cottages down from Camp Presley. Okay. And uh, so it was charming. It was a lovely, lovely place to spend summers. And uh, so, there. So, so, a, so where did you get your boat building skills? Did you just develop them yourself or did your father teach you? How did you develop your skills then? Uh, well, my father had a wooden boat that, at the uh, Corinthian Yacht Club in downtown Washington, D.C. on the Potomac River. And we sailed that, and, you know, wooden boats need decks replaced and various other things and a lot of varnishing and stuff. So so I was fairly familiar with that even, you know, when I was 9 and 10 years old. Um, But then the club was pulling his boat out. Most of the boats at the club were power boats. The club was pulling his boat out with the mast up. The mast hit a tree, um, up above the, the railway, Marine Railway, and uh, it snapped, it didn't break the mast, it snapped the keel um, on the boat. It was a centerboard boat, and it broke the keel right where the centerboard went down uh, through the keel. And so um, so the next couple of years we spent replacing the transom because repla- repairing the keel seemed like such a big job that we were my father wasn't sure how to approach that, so we replaced the transom on that boat. And But then this other boat, a friend told us about this other boat that was for sale, the uh, the um, King's Cruiser, the 28-foot um, Norwegian boat. And uh, we bought that, and um, they used a strange plywood. It was a plywood that had vertical um, planks with two thin layers of veneer on each side of it instead of all the layers being horizontal. And um, it tended to have problems. Um, The boat was probably 25 years old at that point. 
And so we, my dad always did things. He didn't replace the decks with plywood, which would have been pretty easy. He replaced them with solid teak and wide teak planks, beautiful stuff. And so, um, so I learned a lot from working with him. And uh, he was a lawyer. He wasn't really a boat builder. So he was doing this for fun and as a, as a hobby. Um, but, you know, I, I loved doing things together with him and such. And I learned, you know, we didn't have great tools, but we had adequate tools. And so I did learn. It was sort of just natural to be using tools and wood and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, so, so I grew up with that. And so the next boat I built was, well, I built a small uh, 10 or 12 foot, uh, I guess 12, 12 foot um, laminated Western, laminated mahogany veneer um, skiff uh, while I was teaching in Vermont at uh, Putney School. That was a great place. So we did a, uh, evening project building this little. What what, what were you night. teaching? What were you teaching? Oh, I was teaching uh, English to ninth and twelfth grades, and then woods crew and kayaking and rock climbing and. Okay. And um, I never taught shop there, but we did do this boat building project as an evening project with the kids. So that was a fun project, and um, we used the resourcenal glues on that. Epoxy was pretty new at that point and the resourcenal glues were you know were quite they're pretty amazing um glues they were developed in world war ii and they're the purple glues there's yeah. one that you I, 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 I don't think you can buy those anymore can you i don't know where you'd buy them because epoxy is just you know epoxy has is easier to work with it's the big yeah. big thing yeah i've worked the, with resourcenal glue on my boat it was one of the few glues that would actually bond to teak but you had right. you, the problem with it, unlike epoxy, as you know, is you have to have perfect joints. I mean, it's perfect not a it, it's not a gap filling glue like epoxy no, is. It shrinks as it sets up, and so if you are using the glue to try to fill a gap, it shrinks and cracks, and you don't have any joint at all. You don't have any connection. So um, I think that's that's the biggest negative of resourcenal glues is you just have to be a real craftsman to use them successfully. Also, for end, they don't, they won't glue end grain very well. Whereas epoxies, if you saturate the wood of end grain with epoxy, with you know just applying it and applying it and applying it until it doesn't soak up any more epoxy, end grain actually glues pretty well with epoxy. Um, but and the second type of resorcional glue, which was not waterproof, not water resistant, the the one you mix with water was just water resistant, and it worked pretty well in a lot of applications, but the waterproof type, you mixed a powder with a liquid, um, you know, a chemical liquid. Yeah, and that's, yeah. I've tried both of them, and the, the powder just, just never held up. But the, Yeah, uh, it, was, it was supposed to be water-resistant, but the one that you mixed with the, with the um, resin uh, was actually totally waterproof. You mm -hmm. could never dissolve it at all. Yeah, they're still, so, they're still holding up on my boat 20 years later, all the glue joints I did with that. And mine were mainly scarf joints that I did with uh, resourcenal glue. That was that and my cockpit combings. But, yeah, well, that's a that takes some real skill to um, to use resourcenal glue on a big boat because the joints <laughs> do have to be perfect. So, um, so when I built, um, then I was, uh, I guess I, I left Putney, after four years, because I wanted to build another boat, and um, 
and do some more long distance cruising. And so then I, I actually practiced welding quite a bit and I was gonna build a steel boat, a 40 foot steel boat, a Bruce Roberts design. But um, I was a little bit disillusioned with the design. Um, I actually added up the amount of steel he'd put into it and it was more than the total displacement of the boat. So um, I thought, well, gosh, that's not a very good starting point for design. And also I started realizing how much it would cost and how long it would take. And um, then we made a good decision. We switched to um, a 24 foot uh, wooden boat um, to build instead of the 40 foot steel boat. And we were able to do that in a year, just over a year and have it launched and ready to sail. Um, but we did take, we took a design it was a cutlass class uh, design. It was popular in the 60s. It was winning a lot of, for a couple of years, it won all the um, uh, offshore races for the mini um, cruising sloops. Um, a fin keel design with a, uh, did have a skeg on the rudder, but very efficient, you know, very, you know, quite a lovely boat to sail. Um, but it was designed for strip plank mahogany, um, three quarter inch. And my experience with strip plank is uh, it's not, not a terrible way to build a boat, but if you do start to have problems, usually strip plank boats will have problems around the mast where there are a lot of loads. Mm -hmm. And if you open up a seam in a strip plank boat where all the strips are glued together, you know, assumingly, uh, permanently, um, if you open up a seam around the mast or something, it's, it's hard to ever get it to stop leaking. So I wasn't enthusiastic about doing the strip planking. Um, and so we switched the design into uh, uh, Western Red Cedar veneers. Um, and at that point, the uh, Goujon Brothers, West System Goujon Brothers um, was a fairly young company and they were very, very helpful. Mead Goujon um, would send us these long letters. I'd ask him questions and about switching the boat into a you know, a laminated, a cold molded boat from from strip plank. And um, he'd send us these long technical letters about, you know, how, how, how heavy our laminations should be and stuff. But at the beginning, the question was how many laminations of eighth inch Western red cedar to build the boat out of. And Mead said that usually it would be a boat that size and that weight would be three layers of Western, eighth inch Western red cedar the veneers laminated together. But if we wanted to make it extra strong, we could use four layers. So we made it five layers of eighth inch Western red cedar. And um, the thing with adding an extra layer of Western red cedar, um, eighth inch Western red cedar to the hull is you actually make your boat float higher rather than lower because the displacement of that eighth inch of uh, covering below the water line has enough extra buoyancy to more than float the weight of the top side, eighth inch uh, extra layer on the top sides. So you actually get more buoyancy rather than, rather than sitting lower in the water by making the boat stronger that way. <laughs> so I went from the heaviest material, West uh, ferro cement um, for building boats to one of the lightest materials, Western Red Cedar. And that boat turned out beautifully and was built since we'd taken a uh, heavier material um, design, uh, design that was intended for a heavier material, um, mahogany being about 34 pounds per cubic foot and western red cedar being 
um, about 24 pounds per cubic foot, and we've made it uh, thinner, 5 8 inch thickness hull, hull as opposed to 3 quarter inch. We had quite a bit of leeway as far as uh, putting heavy oak framing, white oak framing inside, and also even with overbuilding the boat. In fact, uh, uh, Chris White, the trimaran uh, designer, he was building, we were building in Deltaville, Virginia, and there was quite a community of amateur boat builders there. Chris White was one of them. And um, also, gosh, the other great trimaran designer who designed Constant Camber, he was there. Uh, we, we spent a fair amount of time visiting him. Well, Chris White came by and <laughs> looked at, everyone was always commenting on everyone else's projects and how they were going. And Chris White came by and said, you're building a tank. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, we're, we're overbuilding it so we can take it wherever we want. So we built it pretty, pretty, you know, for the, the, considering the size of the boat, it was super strong and built for just about anything we could think of. Now, is, it, is this the 24 foot boat you're talking about then? The 24 foot boat. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so we launched it and sailed it around the point to um, uh, the creek near our house, and it seemed to sail pretty well. So, uh, so we still had some details in the rigging that we were finishing off the morning that we were ready to head off across the Atlantic Ocean. We were still pop riveting in the uh, uh, some of the pulleys for the um, uh, for the self for the uh, reefing system um, onto the boom. We got those and there were people on the dock there to see us off. And somebody brought, fortunately brought some, um, I thought we were, we, we couldn't, I didn't think we had any spare space or ability to carry anything spare. So I said, well, we're not gonna take any books or anything like that. We just need water and food to make it across the Atlantic Ocean uh, on a 24 foot boat. So fortunately, somebody brought a <laughs> basket full of paperback uh, books, which were really appreciated when we were out sailing out, out at sea. Um, so, so now when was this? How long ago was this? This would have been when? 80. Uh, no, that was, seven, let's see. I graduated from college in 74. And so this was um, probably 79. Okay. And... Uh, so um, we got our last details done. We were leaving on the summer solstice, uh, June 21st, and um, shoved off from the dock, and everyone waved us off. And um, we almost <laughs> almost got into trouble that first night sailing down the Chesapeake, um, sailed down the Potomac to the Chesapeake, and then down the Chesapeake. We um, sailed, <laughs> it was, <laughs> It was a dark night. It's all overcast and dark and no moon. And uh, suddenly, there was like, oh my God, a piling. We're out in the middle of the Chesapeake, way out from shore, like, you know, seven or eight miles out from shore and down towards the mouth of the Chesapeake. And all of a sudden, there's a piling on the starboard side, a wooden piling, heavy piling. And it's like, oh my God, what is that? And there's one on the port side, too. And it's just like, barely like an inch of clearance for us to on either side as we squeeze through between these pilings and then we find we're in the middle of a fish weir and to sail out we have to find a gap 
between pilings that we can fit through again. And then all of a sudden we're <clears throat> being pushed up, you know, at night how lights, uh, distances are really confusing. You can't mm -hmm. tell how close you are, especially if it's just lights that you're seeing. You can't tell if the light's five miles off or a few hundred feet. It's, it's very disorienting. And, you're right. Yes. Yeah. Lights, uh, you know, if you can see a structure, you have a better idea, but just a light is almost no indication of what distance it is. And so suddenly the bridge at the mouth of the Chesapeake, again, that's the tunnel bridge, is like right there. And there's almost no wind. We had no motor on board. We just were sail, um, sail and paddles. And there's almost no wind. We're just barely ghosting along. And the tide is sweeping out and just about to sweep us under the bridge. And we've got all our anchors and everything lashed down in the stern locker with it's all bolted down. The stern locker was bolted down for the Atlantic Passage. We had no, no idea we'd want an anchor before you know, a month later. And uh, so we're, we're almost being swept under the bridge, where, which isn't, is only about 20 feet high, and our masts were much higher than that. And um, just little puffs, and this again is like 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning, little puffs of wind. We just barely are able to keep off the bridge and work our way along it to the tunnel um, where you sail over the car traffic um, where the di bridge dips down below the water again. So um, so <laughs> that was an exciting start to our to our first night of sailing. And um, then the first week we had just squalls and storms one after another and um, pitch black nights where the thing I hadn't I had never sailed, you know, I'd sailed a lot, but never far out at sea. And I had no idea that when there's no light, there's no light, and your eyes simply do nothing. Your eyes don't work. And we had a couple of nights like that where uh, one night especially where it got really windy. We should have reefed earlier, but by the time um, we realized how strong the wind was going to pick up, these squalls coming from behind us, it was just, it would have been impossible to reef. We couldn't, we, we were surfing planing downwind constantly for hours on end. And um, if we tried to reef, we would have had to come up broadside to the wind and the waves would have just pounded us. And it would have been, I, I just don't know if it would have been possible. So we just held on and, and surfed downwind for hours, must have been about five or six hours um, where we were surfing downwind and um, couldn't see a thing except the phosphorescent spray flying out on both sides of the boat, just like a motorboat. And um, so that was that was incredible sailing, really exciting and really fun and really memorable. So, Will, was, who was who was going with you on this trip? Well, my wife at the time, my first wife, and she was she she hadn't done a whole lot of sailing. She'd done a little bit of sailing growing up, but um, but she was pretty amazing. Nothing seemed to phase her too much, and <laughs> she didn't ever get too worried about things. But um, uh, so. So that was good. And, and um, where were you headed? Were you headed to Bermuda or were you headed straight across? Well, we had charts for Bermuda because we'd only sailed the boat for like an hour mm -hmm. before we headed off across the Atlantic. <laughs> um, but I'd build it, so I figured I knew what I was doing. And, you know, there wasn't anything I was going to discover, you know, later on. So, um, so we had charts for Bermuda in case there was a problem. 
but our plan really was to keep going. And um, actually, I, I probably shouldn't tell you this part since I, you know, because my celestial navigation video <laughs> brings things make people wonder about my abilities. But there was an aspect to that relationship where it was like, okay, this is your, this is your area, and this is my area, and I'm not checking up on you. I'm I'm not overseeing you. I'm not like pretending I'm your boss or something. So I don't know. Some marriages sort of have that. You know, I want to do. I want to be. Tell me what to do, and then let me do it by myself, sort of. So um, my wife was doing the initial navigating, and um, I was telling I I was telling her the Great Circle route in True, but then she was turning that into magnetic, and guess oh. what? <laughs> you know what happened? The ocean charts don't have two roses on them. Don't have don't have the magnetic rose on them. They just have the true rose because the variation changes so much as you go across the ocean. So they have just have lines that indicate where the variation changes each degree when it's 20 degrees of variation in this band of ocean, and then it changes to 21 degrees of variation and 22 and such. Okay, but, so I'm going to ask a basic question because I was wondering about this as well. Where It's not on the charts, is it, or what you're talking about? The the very lines of variation are on the charts, and they on on an ocean chart, like a chart that shows the whole Atlantic Ocean, okay. or even a large part of ocean. Um, it won't have the rows because the rows wouldn't be correct for the whole chart. Okay. And rather than put a series of roses across the chart, <clears throat> they just have a dotted, lightly dotted line on each side of the 20 degrees of variation. And because it's kind of a, it's not a straight up and down, it's not a longitudinal line or anything. It's sort of a curved line across the chart. Uh, I think on the Atlantic. It, so sort chart, of like a topographical right. map then. It's sort of like a topo map then. Looking at it then, is that right? Yeah, except it's you know it's just one line is all of 20 degrees, and those lines, those two lines might be four or five inches apart. Okay. And then the next set of lines, and it's a little irregular because the variation changes a little bit based on a lot of factors. So you have to interpolate and, a little bit where no depending on where well, you are then. No, you know one you're not concerned about a fraction of a degree. Yeah. So if you're in the 21 degree variation uh zone, you just do 21 degrees variation. Well, the problem is whether the question is whether you add or subtract. And guess what? <laughs> <laughs> we ended up way far north, and my first, my first sights, my first sights with the sextant, the sun sights. I took uh, a morning sight and an afternoon sight, and it was like, what did I do wrong? This is not anywhere near where we are, based on our dead reckoning. And um, I plotted the positions out on the chart, and I was like. This is like 500 miles wrong. And so I checked all my numbers and it was like, I think I know what I'm doing with this celestial navigation. And, uh, but, but this can't be right. So, um, the next, that night, I, um, we hadn't taken any sights initially because we had such stormy weather and, and, uh, you know, no sightings. With, you know, sometimes you can squeeze out a sun sight, but 
but it was so rough we didn't want to mess with it and we had lots of ocean ahead of us we weren't too worried about it um but finally it got clear and so i took a series of planet and star sites and um like five five sites and worked them out and they all came out one was off but four of them you know off significantly but four of them came out so they all four lines of position crust within like a mile and a half or something and that's a pretty good site you know mm-hmm. set of sight small boat because you're moving around a lot and stuff like that the boat's moving around never stays as still as you'd like when you're taking sights and so it was like well that has to be right if four lines of position all crust and when you do the sun sights you have to advance your position by from the morning site to the afternoon site by your dead reckoning and so there you know there's you know potentially some more chance of errors but when you take four sites more or less simultaneously, you know, within 15 minutes of each other, um, and they all cross at the same place, there's really no way to make a mistake. I suppose you could have your time wrong, but our time was right. Um, and so then I started looking at our dead reckoning, and I realized that my wife had been, uh, let's see, on the East Coast, you want to, from true to magnetic, you uh, subtract. Um, from true to magnetic, you subtract to get the magnetic. So 360 degrees true on the East Coast is going to be 340 degrees magnetic uh, because the North Pole, uh, North Magnetic Pole is someplace over Alaska or something or in that area. It's not where the North uh, Geographical Pole is. And on the West Coast, I think it's the opposite, you know. And but anyway, we'd done the we'd gone she'd gone the wrong way with the correction for the variation. And so we were way far norther far far north of where we um where we meant to be. And actually got out of the Gulf Stream and it was like all of a sudden everything was gray and cloudy and the water was cold and dark looking. Where were you? Where did you end up? Well, we were close to Nova Scotia, but not <laughs> not fortunately, not dangerously close to Nova Scotia. Okay, and, so, um, so up around forty-two degrees north, then was, probably, huh? The celestial was accurate, was right. I, we were where we were like six hundred miles farther uh, across the ocean than than our dead reckoning put us. It was like <laughs> partly we were, were sailing a lot faster than we realized, and partly um, our dead reckoning had been uh, had been off by. Uh, the amount of twice the amount of the variation, which was a lot on the East Coast. So um, anyway, uh, I guess the lesson there is uh, it's not it's a good idea to have two people <laughs> navigating, doing Check, all the checking up on each other. Then, up. huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so two minds are greater, better than one. So what yeah. landfall did you make then when you crossed? Did you go to the Azores or did you head straight to well, England then? Actually, it turned out pretty well. We had about three or four days of almost dead calm way up north. And that was kind of nice because we'd just been smashing along the rest of the, up until that point, just incredible winds and carrying all the sail we could because I thought to get across a big ocean in a small boat, you had to push pretty hard to have enough food and water. But um, but as it turned out, with our sights, um, we were quite a bit farther along than I realized, than I had expected. And then we got up north, and we had about three days of calm, where it was just like, okay, let's put up the sails. 
okay, 10 minutes later, you take them down again because they're just banging around. And it was just like flat, totally flat water, glossy surface and stuff. So it was kind of nice to have a bit of a, you know, just a rest period there. And then the wind filled in from the southwest, and we just had two weeks of beautiful sailing, you know, 15 to 15 to 20 mile an hour winds, probably, you know, 12 to 15 mostly, and um, had our bigger jib up. And, you know, in 24 hours, we'd maybe adjust the sheets, you know, five or six inches or something. <laughs> and the self-steering gear was working great on that course. And we just swept right across to the Azores and arrived in the Azores uh, 21 days after leaving the Chesapeake, which was really quite a fast passage for a 24-foot boat and um, lovely sailing. You know, uh, the last last couple of weeks were just idyllic. And we got back down in the Gulf Stream, of course, and the Portuguese man of war and the beautiful turquoise blue water and warm and comfortable. We actually, uh, when we got farther north, we had some rain. And it turned out that our foul weather gear, which my wife's uh, father had give, very kindly given us. So it was very advanced. It had so many zippers and pockets everywhere. I thought, well, this is really deluxe. So we didn't test it before we left. There was a breathable, I guess, early breathable. The early uh, Gore-Tex then, huh? Yeah. Well, it seemed to breathe the water in just as much as it breathes <laughs> anything out. It wasn't at all waterproof. Um, so, so I was glad when we got back down into warmer weather because it seemed, you know, it seemed that, you know, if you don't have adequate foul weather gear and it's cold and wet your you know resources energy and such get sapped pretty quickly yeah so well, for me when i sailed across i left from hampton virginia and i sailed direct to the azores which was the biggest mistake i made because i goes i left on april 15th tax day in uh and oh, I was that's just, early. Yeah, I was early, and I was hit with every low that came off of the east coast of the United States. And it took me 22 days to get to the Azores. So you got there one day faster than I did and making a big mistake along the way. So Well, it turned out it wasn't that bad, of course. Um, we did get out of the Gulf Stream temporarily way up north. But then when we headed south again, we got back in the Gulf Stream. That, that adds a half a knot. Um, to your to your crossing, uh, to your speed. So we averaged five and a half knots the entire trip, even with the days of calm. So um, so there were times when we must have been doing, you know, some of those stormy nights. We must have been when we were surfing. We were probably doing ten, twelve, fourteen knots and stuff. Um, so so we did have some really fast sailing uh, along the way. And the boat sails fast. It sails like a dinghy. Mm. It's really it's a little bit more lively than one might think was ideal on um, big ocean, but, um, but it's super fun to sail. It's just got a really short fin keel, not, not super short, like a racing boat today, but the, from the front edge of the fin keel to the back edge is only about four and a half feet or so. So, um, so it's a pretty lively boat and fun to sail. Do you still own the boat? Yeah, still have it. It's right outside, right outside the building I'm in. Um, now and sitting on a trailer, we've had it in the water out here off and on. In fact, actually after, so we sailed on to Gibraltar and then, um, and we sort of had a question there based on our timing, whether we spend the next, uh, year in the Mediterranean or whether we stay in Spain and 
and then sail back the next uh, spring. We decided we'd really like to, to explore the Mediterranean. So um, sailed on uh, to um, the Balearic Islands and from Spain. The Balearics are out off the coast of Spain and then up through between Corsica and Sardinia and then across to Italy, Scylla, Italy, and then through the Straits of... Messina. Messina, that's it. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you. Um, although one night, uh, gosh, just after we left the Balearics, uh, very calm. Oh, my gosh, we were drifting all over the place. There was no motor any of this time. We just didn't have a motor on board. I figured that for an ocean crossing on a on five gallons of five gallons of water, you could sail a thousand miles maybe. On five gallons of gas, you could probably go fifty miles or something. <laughs> so, uh, so we decided that not having a motor was was a better option. But um, off of Balearics, heading to Italy, it was just so light. But um, then one afternoon, we were just kind of drowsing and you know sort of sailing, but not really sailing. And then all of a sudden, we realized there were five sperm whales right right around our boat. And that was very cool. We spent a couple hours with the sperm whales um, actually dragging behind our boat and swimming, and they'd swim alongside. And it was very, it was very close quarters, and that was fun. And then that night, uh, at two in the morning, I was on watch, and again, it was such light wind, but and I was kind of half awake and half asleep. And then there was this light that was like way up high in the sky, and. I thought, oh my God, there's a ship. I couldn't see running lights, but so I steer away from this uh, supposed ship, and I I can't seem to get any farther away from it, and I keep turning and trying to figure out what it is, and it seems kind of you know you're not quite awake, and it's kind of like eerie and ghostly, and you know, it was mysterious, and I was like, how come I can't ever get away from this light? And about an hour later, trying to dodge this supposed ship that was trailing us, stalking us, sort of, I realized that it was a light from the volcanoes on Stromboli. Ah, okay. Stromboli off the coast of Italy. See, I had, <laughs> was, I had a similar experience. It was because, like 35 miles away. Yeah, I was, I was uh, sailing from, my family had left me at Salerno, my next crew I needed to pick up in Sicily. And so I'd sailed out from Salerno out to uh, Capri for the night. And then got up early in the morning uh, in Capri and started sailing south or uh, motoring. See, I motored because I, <laughs> I motor because I don't want to spend all day. Anyway, I was motoring and all day long it was hotter than heck and not a breath of wind. And in the middle of the night, I went forward to, to the shrouds and I to pee to go pee overboard. And as I'm peeing, I see this bright red light right in front of me, right in front of me, and. Uh, <laughs> I hurry and run back to the to the cockpit, and I release, slow down the engine, and I, re, you know, stop, and then the light goes out. Yeah, <laughs> the light goes. It was like not a steady light. It yeah. Was like, okay, I'm getting farther away from it now. Oh wait, now I'm really close to it again. <laughs> yeah, and it was just like you. It wasn't until sunup came up, and it was still maybe ten miles away when I could finally see the island. But in the middle of the night. You can't tell how far that is. It, it was, yeah. You have no idea. I, I was totally lost. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. But, yeah, so that was great. Um, 
And then Italy was really neat. We tried to clear in with our passports, and they weren't interested at all in our passports. And <laughs> it was like, well, where do we clear in? And we were in the, you know, we've been chatting, and he, the guy behind the counter in the city hall had been asking about it, our family and if we had kids and where we could, you know, all these questions. And it was like, well, where do we clear in? And he said, oh, you're fine. You're cleared in now. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Well, was this, now, did you stop in Sardinia when you were going through Sardinia, or did you go straight from the Balearics to Italy, to Italy then? Corsica. Oh, um, Corsica. So Bonifacio, probably. Yeah, Bonifacio. Yeah, the, with the high white cliffs mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. the house was falling into the sea. Um, so that's France. That's not Italy then. So That is France. Yeah, they claimed Napoleon's birthplace, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, religious icons being carried through the street. It was, it was yeah, really something. The spectacular. Um, that is one of the most spectacular ports I've ever been in. Is in Bonifacio. It, it was pretty neat sailing in there, yeah. um, because there's the winds are a little fluky because you're surrounded with 150 foot or 100 foot cliffs on each side, maybe even higher. Um, the, <laughs> which was similar. We. We got went on and sailed up the Gulf of Corinth in Greece, mm-hmm. and uh, the wind was from the west. And I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. We can sail right through the canal, um, <laughs> the Corinth Canal, and uh, just like hold wind, keep going wind. We're blasting along, um, and we sail into the mouth of the canal, and you know, a couple hundred yards into the canal. And then all these horns and sirens go off, and then this loudspeaker, turn around, turn around, turn oh, around right now. Yeah. So we turn around and tack back out, you know, then to the little holding basin, and uh, they say, cannot sail through the canal. And it was like, well, we don't have any motor. What are we to do? And they, they thought, oh, my God, this is going to cost us a thousand dollars to get through the canal. Um and they tow you through the canal, but uh, it was like a thousand drachma to be towed through. And when I did the math, it was like, oh, that's a little under $20. That's, <laughs> that's great. And we're sitting in the holding basin, and this big boat comes out, um, sort of a, a commercial boat comes out that's probably 50 feet wide. And I was like, oh, my gosh, look at that boat. And then we get towed through the canal. And you, have you been through the canal? Yeah, I've been through three, t- four times, I think now. Yeah. Yeah, it's like fifty feet wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and you wonder how these big boats can get through there. I'm worried about hitting the side on my little boat. So yeah. Yeah, and both sides have scrapes the whole length of the canal, <laughs> where the boats have been scraping along the sides, and in the middle, there's not a breath of air in the wind. There's the straight up vertical sheer rock cliffs are 150 feet high. It was like we never would have made it through, you know. So, anyway, that was was good to get a tow there. So, how many years did you spend sailing the Mediterranean? This is more than one summer you're talking about here, then. No, we sailed in. No, this is still the same summer. Wow, you're making time then. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would have been nice to spend more time different places, but but we we enjoyed. We went to Alicante in Spain and spent, you know, a few days in the Balearics and a few days in Italy and then um, got through into the Greek islands and sailed across to Turkey, bounced back and forth between Turkey and Greece, which every time 
we'd clear into the next, you know, it's kind of like we'd be in one country one night and then the winds would take us to a harbor in the other country the next night. And they weren't all that friendly, uh, Turkey and Greece at that point. And so they would sort of glare at us every time we cleared into <laughs> Greece from Turkey and Turkey from Greece. But without a motor, you know, you don't have a lot of options about what port you're going to make you know, for your next landfall. So did you go to Bodrum? Was that one of the towns you went to or Ches- yeah. Chesme or Cushadasi yeah. or where, where did you go on the Turkish Bod- coast? Bodrum. Spent, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We spent the winter, spent the winter in Bodrum. Okay. Uh, I think. Was that where we spent the winter? Well, it's a pretty popular spot. So you would have come over from the island of Kos no, or no, Kalminos. No, no, no. We, we we spent the winter in in um in Rhodes. Um, we oh, spent quite okay, a bit of time okay, in okay. Um, and then we'll sail along to Olu. Oh, uh, see, I can't. I guess I got. I don't know if I got. Yeah, I think I got to Bodrum and then went back down to Rhodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's just south. You would have gone around the peninsula and then. Uh, yeah. In through Dacha and, and Bosburn and then hop over to Rhodes. You might have gone to Marmaris on in Turkey as well. Yeah, it was kind of late. I thought about yeah. spending the winter yeah, we spent we spent some time in Marmaris. That was mm-hmm. really nice. That's a nice Turkish family. And hung out with them a bit. And um then uh ended up getting into Rhodes sort of late, you know, as the season was kind of closing. You start getting, you know, some pretty treacherous storms coming mm-hmm. through it. Yeah, the late. winters are, are treacherous in the Mediterranean. So we're, yeah, September's really are really pushing the envelope. When, I, when I've been there in September, it's been hit and miss. Sometimes you'll have a great September, sometimes not. So you're talking about probably yeah, around October. So Late October, early yeah. November. And um, the harbor was, harbor was pretty full, but <clears throat> there was just a little bit of space next to this English boat and um, we were interviewed by uh, Peter, the English skipper, and his wife, Jermaine, and they decided we were acceptable as neighbors, so they moved their boat over <laughs> tight against And I was just 24 feet. They, were, they thought it would be nice to have a 24-foot wooden boat in there instead of a, some huge steel boat trying to cram itself in. So, um, so we had a wonderful winter in Rhodes there. And then the next summer... Um, next spring, early spring, uh, explored along the coast of Turkey and uh, ended up back at Athens. And then uh, from Athens, I actually, by, at the end of the summer, I shipped the boat back. It was small enough, it just fit in a container and shipped it uh, on a container ship. So you so, you paid the price for going over. The, the run home is supposed to be a cakewalk compared to going I, over. I would have loved to. Yeah, I'd love to do that trip back. And um, hopefully I'll still get to do it someday. Well, um, I've, got, I've got an opening on my boat uh, for this summer from the Canary Islands down to the Cape Verde Islands. If you want to go, <laughs> tempting. That's the boat. That's the boat you built and mm-hmm. launched and built. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's super. Yeah, that sounds like a classic boat. That's beautiful. It's a, well, I'm working on a, I'm working on a steel boat now. Um, a 37 foot steel boat that I hope to finish off. It actually, I, I took the project over from an, another fellow who'd spent 20 years. He was a naval pipe fitter and welder and uh, did really beautiful welding on it. It's not, you know, it's not quite yacht yacht quality as far as, you know, just elegant and gorgeous, 
but that's not what I'm looking for. And it's really strong and beautifully built. And it's a round bottom steel though, which is a little less less usual. It's not a doesn't have any chines on it. How are you making the bends? Oh well, the other fellow had done all the steel work. Oh, okay. Um, so you're finishing it off then. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, it kind of takes up from more than 40 years ago where I almost built a steel boat myself. And I do, you know, I can weld fittings and stuff. So I've been welding some of the stainless steel fittings and hatch, hatch hinges and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so it's, if I just had time to work on it now, I could finish it off in another two or three months and um, love to take that back to the Mediterranean. But um, I keep getting so many orders for our small boat business, our model boat business. That Let, let's, let's switch. We've been talking about... Uh... Wow, about an, over an hour now. So let's switch to that for just a minute, and then maybe I'll get you back for another interview. I don't want to go too much longer than an hour, but let's talk about your model boats and how you got into that and what you do there. Okay, so I grew up with a Keystone model yacht, which I didn't realize. I had no no idea at the time what it was. Uh, just, you know, it was a fun boat to sail, and it sailed really nicely, and would sail in a straight line, and we'd send it out in the morning before the parents were awake and it would be heading off across the lake and we'd have to run up and say, mommy, daddy, our boat's sailing away. Can we get in the dinghy or in the rowboat and row after it? Um, Because we weren't allowed to go out in the rowboats until they were awake. And uh, so they'd have to get up and we'd row out, uh, row ourselves out and chase our boats and stuff. My sister had one too, and she had a keystone as well. So the two boats were really fun together and sailed admirably and um i didn't realize the history of the keystone boat company it was founded by uh, uh uh charles a rimmer um and all the packages of the boats that the bo- boats came in said charles a, designed by charles a rimmer mit graduate and naval architect and um the company initially was the jackram seaworthy boat company um, named after the two founders, Jackson and Rimmer. So Jack Rim came from Jackson and Rimmer combined. And um, But Jackson only stayed with the company. He was a uh, classmate at MIT of uh, Charles Rimmer. And, um, but Jackson only stayed with the company for a couple of years. And then uh, Rimmer, Chester, Chester Rimmer, um, Chester Rimmer continued with the company, um, founded the company in 1921, and continued with the company until 1958. And at the end, the company the company was bought uh, by Keystone Toy Company. They did a lot of the pressed metal uh, toy trucks and cars and stuff that we, you know, that were before um, plastics. Those were popular toys. And um, the boats were they continued to be really high quality for quite a few years. But then I think the Keystone Toy Company um, went out of business or was sold to a company out in the Midwest. And towards the end, the boats were really, we had one of the later designs and it wasn't, it wasn't the cedar hull or some of the, some of the hulls were cedar and some were redwood. It's a little hard to tell the difference between those two woods in an older boat. Um, And they switched to a cheaper wood and the wood was heavier and they took a lot of the weight out of the keel and they put plastic sails on instead of woven cloth sails and 
just really degraded the boats. And the, so we had one of the more modern ones, and it never sailed very well at all uh, compared to our older boats. So um, so I grew up with that, and uh, that was a tradition. They built um, thousands of boats. They were sort of the dominant builder in the U.S. Um, and historically, the other company that was really famous and well-known was the star of Birkenhead boats from England. And that was an interesting story as well. The um, uh, family was um, had had a shipyard in Belgium, and when World War One was at the in its early days, um, they they had a, a fishing boat um, on the ways that was almost completed, almost ready to be launched, and the Germans were approaching their village, and the father said. We're not going to find out what happened when the Germans get here. We're going to. Um, he took his whole family and, you know, as many possessions as they could on board this boat and launched it and motored across the channel to England. And they settled in England. And after the war, they couldn't, uh, they really didn't have the finances or funds to rebuild a shipyard, but they started building these um, small model boats, um, called it the Star. Star of Birkenhead. So a lot of kids, especially English kids, grew up with these Star of Birkenhead boats, and they were imported to the U.S. for many years. In fact, they were one of our main competitors when I started my company, and um, they were cute. They they never sailed quite as well as our boats. Um, our boats have cast, you know, uh, casting in the keel at the bottom of the keel uh, bulb that is quite heavy and makes the boats really perform well in stronger winds and all kinds of conditions. So uh, the Star of Birkenhead boats never did quite as well, um, but they were cute and nicely built. And then in 1991, the whole area, that whole part of the waterfront where their factory was, um, Star Factory was, was scheduled for redevelopment and their factory was bulldozed and they never rebuilt. They never, I guess the kids weren't interested in continuing the company, and so the company disappeared. And um, so that left, and the Jackram Seaworthy boats had ended, you know, in the 1960s, uh, or 1950s, rather, um, early 1950s. And so that left Tippy Canoe Boats as really the only producer of really high quality model wooden model sailboats, toy sailboats and model sailboats in the world. And um, so we built our business from, you know, just bit by bit. It started in a one and a half car garage in Seattle, the Ravenna area of Seattle, and uh, outgrew that space. In fact, the neighbors were very, very understanding and supportive. But we definitely got to the point where, where we were uh, no longer fit in a residential community as, as a producer. And um, we supplied Eddie Bauer with boats and FAO Schwartz and a bunch of big companies and um, produced a lot of boats there. But then we um, found a place up uh, here north of Bellingham where we had a much have a much bigger shop, a real nice shop, beautiful shop, and assembly building and and everything. And moved up here, and have that was 30 years ago. And um, gradually, just have built a reputation for really high quality and boats that sail and perform really well. To the point where now, I just 
really don't do any marketing at all. And we get orders just constantly, more orders than we can. I have to work hard to keep up um, with all the orders we get now. And uh, like yesterday, we got an order for a 12-inch boat, a 15-inch boat, and an 18-inch boat. And today we got an order for a 27-inch radio control boat and for a 50-inch radio control boat. And um, so it's been a really fun thing, and people are so enthusiastic about our boats and so excited to get them and well, everything. Well, it's, I'm a, on your website, so let me ask you a few questions because I see you've got a lot of RC boats, and you have, I guess, the main one is a T-37 racing sloop. Talk to me about right. that. And when you say a kit, what are you getting when you buy that uh, that that kit? So for years, we had the free sailing boats, which are traditional toy sailboats mm-hmm. and solid hulls. And then we gradually got into some hollow hulls that were carved out out of cedar. And they were beautiful, but they're really time-consuming. In fact, one of those, Sony Records bought one of those boats for Shania Twain um, when she won the Grammy Awards. And uh, as a gift for Shania Twain, um, congratulating her for her award. Um, And that was one of our early radio control boats um, because they were hollow and we could put radio control on them. But radio control was still pretty basic back then. It was proportional, which means if you move the control stick a little bit, the rudder just moves a little bit. So that was a big development of radio control. Nikola Tesla sailed the first radio control boat in Central Park in the early 1900s. Um, but radio control wasn't digital proportional at that point. It was just like if you hold down a button, the servo runs until you let the button turns until you let the button off. So it wasn't nearly as predictable as when you turn the control stick just a little bit and your rudder moves exactly the same number of degrees as you move the control stick. So, um, and radio control was expensive to start with, but now it's now it's gotten so cheap and easy and people think, oh, what do I have to know? All you have to know is how to run a flashlight. You, you know, for radio control, you just put the batteries in and turn it on and it works. So, um, so it's really nice and you have complete control now with one servo controlling the rudder and one servo controlling the sails. So you can shoot the sails in and let the sails out and they both go in and out together. The jib and the mainsail go out the same angles together and then come in the same angles. So they're always set correctly relative to each other. Well, the 37 started out a little bit simpler. Um, I knew that we really couldn't efficiently produce these carved cedar hulls hollowed out and everything. They just, they were beautiful, but they took so many hours. And um, so I was over at a friend's house and he was just gotten a couple of stitch and glue kayak kits, um, plywood kayak kits, and uh, was showing me, they started putting the first one together. He started showing me those and, um, and it was like, wow, we could apply the same kind of concept to model sailboats. And so I went home and cut out parts um, similar to our 18-inch boat, but twice as big, 37 inches long, and cut out parts by hand and found that we could just tape those parts together with blue masking tape instead of having to stitch them together with wires like you do for kayaks, kits, and tape the parts together with masking tape and then spread epoxy fillets on the inside 
get the put the deck in place um, to hold the shape of the boat to hold the sides apart at the right angle. So now you've got the bottom and the two sides and the transom in place, and the deck is just temporarily um, in place to hold everything at the right uh, width that holds the sides apart at the right width. And then um, then you add the deck, glue the two two the keel finish two halves. Uh, two pieces of plywood glued together. It's all marine plywood, really high quality marine plywood. And um, then there's a keel casting that bolts on the bottom of the keel. So it's just like building a full-size boat. And actually you learn a lot of boat building skills doing it that can be applied to full-size boats. But the project goes along really quickly because, you know, putting the rudder together instead of taking a week or something takes <laughs> takes less than an hour. <laughs> Probably about 40, 35 minutes or so to put the rudder together. So I'm on the so, website, T-I-P-P-E-C-A-N-O-E-B-O-A-T-S, tippecanoeboats.com. And and I'm looking at these, and I'm looking at the pictures, but, boy, I don't see any instructions anywhere here. <laughs> Where are the instructions? Think, you know, that is one aspect of of our boats that people really, really like a lot. We get so many comments about how great our instructions are they're <laughs> instruction booklets like the, okay the t37 is we have two versions of it the standard version which is a little simpler and the racing upgraded version which just has everything all the rigging is adjustable sail luff tension and outhaul and clue outhaul and everything's adjustable sheeting systems are all adjustable and everything um the the standard manual is like sixty pages with okay. pictures and text, and so, the racing so, upgrade version is probably seventy five pages. So, Will, you spent nine hours doing a video on how to learn to celestial navigate. Have you done the same thing on building your boat yet? Well, on the T thirty seven, we've had we've had all this. I, I mean, I t I can take credit for the basic designs, but we have had so much help from really clever people. Um, like Jonathan McKee, who's an Olympic gold medal winning skipper, and uh, Carl Bucken, who um, he and his father are the only known Olympic gold medal winning uh, winners, where they both, father and son, in different classes, both won gold medals in the same year. So Carl, Carl Bucken and Jonathan McKee have our T-37s, and a lot of clever big racing you know skippers that race big sailboats out in the sound and are just really clever people have uh adopted our t-37s and raced them actively and they've come up with some really really clever rigging ideas and you know systems for adjusting things so the standard boat is a lot of fun if you're not racing actively the standard boats standard t-37 is fine and will give a lot of years of pleasure but the racing version as everything that a racing skipper could ever want, everything's adjustable, and and tuning the boats makes all the difference um, when you're racing. If you get your boat tuned perfectly, they are just so fast and so easy to sail. <laughs> well, and, I'm uh, I'm gonna have I was I was going to try to go to YouTube and look up look up uh, construction videos of it. I'm sure they're out there, but I just don't see anything on your so, website. So well, so Dan Dan Newland. Uh, one of our big boat skippers, he built a 37-foot carbon, all-carbon fiber hull himself, racing boat that was super fast and everything. And um, he called me up one day. He built two or three of the T-37s, and he posted some classes on group group activities on building T-37s. 
he called me up one day and said, Will, you need a building video for your T-37. And I said, yeah, that would be great. That would be super. And it's just I don't know when I can find time to do it because we're making boats all the time and shipping things. Um, and he said, well, I'm going to do it for you. And so one of the building videos is by Dan Newland on YouTube for the T-37. And it's very, very comprehensive. And he is a super clever guy. He could be a TV personality. And, and he just talks so well and presents everything so clearly. And he's just such a clever guy. Um, so that's one of the building videos. But he does give options. He says, well, this is one way to approach it. You can do it this way, or you can do it this way, or here's another idea. And so I did, you know, all of his ideas are good. And we edited the footage um, and put it up on YouTube. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm you know, actually on Tippy Canoe's uh, channel on, on YouTube. That's what was playing in the background there. So that's where okay. the videos are, is on that YouTube channel then. Yeah, and one's by Dan Newland. And then we felt that some people just want to be told how to do it. They don't want options. They don't want to be told you can do it this, this way or this way. Uh, so we did a simple build video on the T-37 as well, and I did that one. Um, and it just says, this is how you do it, and it's the same, you know, exactly the same as the instructions read through. And um, so some people watch, a lot of people watch both videos and take ideas from both, and all the ideas are good. Um, and some people may just watch the simpler one and just do it the way we say in a quick, fast, easy build. Okay, um, I'm going to put a link to that YouTube channel here on the show notes right now. Paste. Yeah, yeah. If you if you go to YouTube and Google T37 Builder's Guide, you'll come up with both both of those. And those um, there's quite a few hours of video there too. Um, and you don't. If you do it by the video, it's real time. It's not like a marketing video at all. It's it's like you don't have to read the instructions. You can build the whole boat from the video, and everything's explained and everything's shown, and it's all it's all very detailed. So, um, but the instructions, you know, the instructions are standalone as well. The written instruction, it's it's very very comprehensive. I was an English major, and that's seems irrelevant to what I've been doing most of my life uh, there's my wife calling let me uh mute but that. it actually okay. helped with writing the instructions very clearly yeah all right well i've got uh, the links to the youtube videos of your navigation courses also your website and also the youtube videos on your t37 and uh i've really enjoyed talking to you i want to get you back again if we have a chance but well, it's been super fun. We've ran out of time. We've got a one hour and 23 minutes so far. So I'm okay. going to stop it right there. We'll, well, we'll come back later on. Let, let them know about our uh, our newest website is sailingis.com. I've got that linked as well. Sailingis.com. Okay. okay. Let me look at the what I've got here. I've got, uh, I've got Tippy Canoe Boats. I've got Sailing is me.com is that the new website uh, sail, that's the same as sailing is.com but sailing is is more is easier to remember okay I'll so put sailing is.com like sailing is fun or sailing is exciting but just sailing is.com okay i will just edit that sailing yeah. is take off the me is in other words okay there sailing it so sailing so take off okay hold on here edit this thing Sailing is 
Okay, I'll change that, and uh, we'll make sure the show notes are there. I'll send you a link to it when we're done, when it's up. It should be up hopefully later today. But uh, I'm going to turn off the recorder. We'll catch up a little bit when I turn off the recorder, but thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, Franz. Okay. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.